you grab your Bibles this morning, we're going to turn open to the book of Ephesians. If you're using a pew Bible, it's there on page 976 in the pew Bible. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, kind of do a high-level overview of verses 3 through oh, 10, maybe down to 14. Uh, I want you to turn there and we'll look at it together. Why don't we go before the Lord in prayer, before we open the Word this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for Your eternal Word. and We are thankful that it is eternal truth. We pray that this morning, that as it goes out, as it's read, as it's preached, it would not return void, but it would write those eternal truths upon our eternal hearts. We might be those who know you more fully, and who desire you more readily, who walk in you more ably, and give you glory with our whole beings. We thank you for this word, bless it to our hearing even now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our faith focus uh, this year, here in January, as we explore together, is biblical identity. And we're taking the month of January just to explore that together. You remember last week we looked at our created identity. This week what I want to do is look at our redeemed identity together. Who are you? That question, who are you? If you are a Christian in this room, that answer should immediately pop into your mind. What is it that first defines me? It's not my occupation, though that is important. It's not my relationships, though that is necessary. I'm a father, mother, brother, or sister, or aunt, or uncle, or son, or daughter. It's also not my sex, though that is absolutely essential that I'm male or female. It's not that that defines and gives structure to everything else beyond everything else. What identifies me more than anything else as a Christian is that I am a Christian. And so I am a Christian lawyer, I am a Christian man, I'm a Christian mom, I'm a Christian student at Michigan State University, I'm a Christian. 
that defines and distinguishes everything else about me as a Christian? Do I understand who I am in Christ and what it means to be a Christian? That seems pretty basic. But here's the reality. Is that I don't understand it as I should. No Christian does. If we did, our dreams would be different. Our hopes would be different. Our longings would be different. Our contentment would be different. Our peace would be different. Our love would look different. We know it, what it means to be a Christian, and we don't know it. In fact, the Christian life is one of continual growth. Growth in understanding more fully who I am in Christ and growing to look more like what I already am in Christ. And the more we understand who we are in Christ, the more every other part of our lives falls into its proper place. I want to look this morning at nine things. This is a nine-point sermon, so we're going to move. Nine things that Paul says in this text about our identity in Christ. There could be more, so if we have extra time, I'm going for more. But nine is what I'm after this morning. Nine. First, what we must understand about our redeemed identity is that we are united to Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians here, he's longing for these Christians in Ephesus to to grasp the importance of the gospel, to understand it in all of its full weight and all of its implications. He wants them to stand in awe at the gospel truth that they've received. And the language that he uses beyond all else is in Christ. He wants them to understand and glory in the gospel that they have in Christ. In fact, Paul will use this phrase, in Christ, over 160 times in his letters. He wants Christians to know you are united to Christ. That's the very heart of the wonder of the gospel, and it's the central truth of the Christian life. If Tolkien was writing about the Christian life and what it is the Christian life is, he would say that this is the one truth to rule all other truths about the Christian life. That you're united to Christ. Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. If you just look at these opening verses here in chapter 1, just the verses we went through, in verse 1, Paul says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He then says, God has blessed us in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, meaning Christ Jesus. Verse 5, it's through Christ Jesus, that is in Christ Jesus, that we were predestined. Verse 6, He blessed us in the Beloved, Jesus. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. And we could go on. It is in Christ, united to Christ, that is the great marker of the Christian's life. And Jesus will speak about this on multiple occasions. In John 14, when He is speaking about Pentecost and the day that the Spirit would be poured out upon the church, He uses this language when he's speaking to his disciples. He says this to them. He says, you are in me and I am in you. He will make it even simpler in John 17 verse 23 when he's speaking to his father in prayer and he says this, I in them. That's an astounding thought. That should blow every circuit in your head. That Christ is in me as a Christian. And I am in Christ. You sang it this morning. You sang about how we are enthroned with Him above. Well, how are you enthroned with Him above? Well, you're in Christ above. Even as He is here below in you. It's astounding. And if that doesn't rattle 
your soul with delight and love becomes even more profound in the way that Jesus speaks of it. When Jesus is looking for an analogy about what it is, what it looks like that He is in us and we in Him, this is what He says in those two passages, John 14 and John 17. John 14, I am in My Father, and you in Me, and I in you. In John 17, when He's praying to the Father, He says, I in them, and you in Me, that they may be perfectly one. When Jesus is looking throughout heaven and earth, and He's looking for an analogy to explain to you and I what does it look like that He's in us and that we are in Him. The only analogy He can find and the analogy that He runs to is His abiding in the Father. And the Father's abiding in Him. The most treasured of all eternal relationships he compares it to that. There was a, a young man and a young woman that were dating and went to a movie together and they're sitting there before the movie and the young lady says to the young man before the movie starts, uh, do you find me attractive? And the guy is flabbergasted, not sure how to think on his feet. He has only been thinking about the big jar of popcorn that's on his lap, and this comes out of left field before a movie. Who asks such questions before a movie? And so he comes up with an analogy, the best he can think of in the moment. He had popcorn on the brain, and so he says to her, you are more beautiful than this movie theater popcorn with all the butter that's running all over it she would not be so impressed. Let's say there was a young couple that is sitting there before a movie and the young woman looks at him and says, do you find me attractive? He says, well, do you remember I came back a couple of weeks ago from traveling out east? And you'll remember that I scaled the Himalayas. And I'm only a few of men on earth that have gone to the top of those mountains. You know, I risked my life in doing it. But it was worth it. Because I got to the top and I could look down from the top of this mountain range. And I could see all the snow-covered peaks down below. And it was as if I was looking out on all of the earth. And the sky was blue and it was crisp. It was nature in all of its beauty, unspoiled. And I would risk my life to see such a beautiful picture again. But I don't need to. Because you're more beautiful than anything I saw while I was up there. Now that'll work. Jesus sits over all of heaven and earth. He sees it all. All of its beauty. Everything and all of its astounding wonder. And He says when He speaks about you and I and our relationship with Him, the only thing He can find that is a, an adequate analogy is that eternal relationship He has had with the Father and the Spirit forever. The most beautiful thing in all of eternity. I am in you. You are in me. We are in union. Even as I am in union with the Father. And the Father with me. That should blow every circuit in your head. It should tickle your soul with delight. And that singular truth changes everything about the Christian. Paul was saying, Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but 
Christ who lives in me. Or as he says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His entire life is not just lived for Christ. It's not just lived to the praise of Christ. His entire life is Christ. It's Christ. I'm going to ask you a few application questions after each of these points this morning. Application questions for our first point. Dear Christian, do you define yourself above all else as a Christian? Is that what defines me? Is Christ my greatest delight? If so, how does that show itself in the use of my time and my devotion to prayer and my love for worship and my greatest aspirations? Do I live as one who dwells in union with the sovereign Lord of the universe because I do, in fact, dwell in union with the sovereign Lord of the universe? Second, we are chosen in Christ. He chose us, we're told in verse 3, before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us, we're told in verses 4 and 5, before the foundation of the world. I'm His... Because He chose to make me His as a Christian. It's a wonderful thing to be chosen. Think about those days on the elementary school playground where the kids are together, or maybe it's in the neighborhood and a game's about ready to start. Maybe it's baseball, maybe it's football, maybe it's basketball, maybe it's that great American sport of kickball. And there are two kids for whatever reason, because they're usually the strongest, or because they're the biggest, or because they're the loudest, or because they're the most athletic, that they are the two team captains. And they will then choose. They'll choose who will be on each team, and they will almost always choose based upon two things. They will choose because they see ability in somebody. That person is good at soccer. I'm choosing them. Or it's because that person is a friend. And they want their friends on their team. This is not what happens with us in Christ. We're chosen before the foundations of the world not because of what we could do or what we would become or what we were. We had no ability. We were not friends with God. Yet He chose us. Why? Well, Paul says, out of love. In love, He predestined us. All is His sovereign work. All is of grace. All is an overflow of His love. A love that is firmly rooted in the Trinity. And from that love, He showers that love upon us. And chooses us. We become recipients of the overflow of that love. Scott Swain recently thinking upon John 17, that prayer that we've already referenced said this, he said, that which binds the Trinity ad intra, that is, within the relations of the persons of the triune Godhead, that which binds the Trinity ad intra, the Father's love for the Son in the Spirit, John 17, 24, is what binds us to the Trinity ad extra, that is, the action outside of the Trinity, the Father's love for the Son in the Spirit. What binds the three persons of the triune Godhead together, the the Father's love for the Son in the Spirit, that is also what binds us together with our triune God. We're in the Son. Paul wants these Ephesian Christians to understand this. He wants them to to know this and revel in this and delight in this. He, He will say in Ephesians 3 that he prays this for them. He's praying that they would know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ. That they would have strength, he says, to comprehend with all the saints. That they might know this love. This love that has no beginning. We're chosen in Christ out of love. There is no more secure love you can have than this love of God for us in Christ because it is rooted in His eternal being, not in us. 
can search high and low for different loves. And none can be as sweet as good as this love. Because it's rooted in His eternal being. So questions. Do I doubt God's love for me because of my circumstances? Do I rest in knowing that God loves me in Christ? Am I looking for something else to fill my cup? Do I get bored in hearing about the love of Christ? Or am I excited to hear and think upon it because I'm on a continual journey or a quest to understand its breadth and its length and its height and its depth more and more? But people say that I'm a humble Christian or an arrogant Christian. Am I humbled by this gospel truth or do I wear my Christianity with pride thinking somehow that I secured it? Do I often thank God for choosing and loving me? Or is He much more the recipient of my complaints? Third, we are blessed in Christ. Paul says in verse 3 that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He does not have more to give than He has given. God is not like Ananias and Sapphira who held some in reserve. He's not like Laban who tried to keep the best of the flock. He's not like Pharaoh who only wanted to give some of what was needed. God gives us in Christ, Paul says, every spiritual blessing. There's no reserve. But there's also nothing lacking. So how can Paul say this? Because we have been given Christ. And in Christ, the Christian has been given all things. We're blessed. We often talk about salvation as a myriad of blessings. And there are a myriad of blessings. There's a myriad of benefits. But... The blessing, the benefit is Christ Himself. And all of those other blessings and all of those other benefits are ours because we are in union with Christ. Because we have been given Christ. The benefits and the blessings accompany Christ. And Christ is not given out piecemeal to His people. When you receive Christ, you receive the whole Christ. He's yours. And so that means all the blessings and the benefits are yours. Now granted, some of our blessings in Christ are not in a mature form yet, but they are all ours now. We have peace now. We have hope now. We have love now. We have righteousness now. We have forgiveness now. We are holy now. Nothing is kept from us. We're blessed in Christ. You're reminded of that at the end of our services each Sunday when we do the benediction. It isn't just a kind of religious, formal, liturgical moment where we do this mumbo-jumbo so you can go out feeling good about yourselves. It's not what it is. But rather, it's a benediction. It's a blessing saying that You are receiving the same blessing that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob received. That all the saints before you have received. That this covenant-keeping God is pouring out His grace upon you and is blessing you. You are blessed. And you can now go into the world as those who are blessed. He's with you. It's all ours because we're in Christ. Questions of application. Do I understand that it's in Christ that I have all things? Or does my heart and mind run after other things? Do I live a life of thanksgiving and gratitude and joy? Or am I a malcontent and a covetous person? Good thing to ask a spouse, ask a friend. Do I fundamentally want something more than Christ? Do I rejoice that all the blessings that are mine are in Christ? 
Fourth, we are saints. We're called to holiness in Christ. I was with the high school students this past week, and we were talking about this very thing, and I asked them, and I'll ask you, I said, what do you think of when you think of a saint? I think for most of us, we think of these great people of the Christian faith that have preceded us. We think of St. Augustine. We think of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. That's a lot of modern-day people. They would say, well, St. Teresa. The Roman Catholic faith has made a mess of this where it somehow thinks that there are some people that have arrived at a higher level than other people and so therefore they are qualified for some kind of status as saints where the rest are not, but that is not biblical. In the Bible, you are a saint. You are a Christian. That's how Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's how he begins most of his letters, to the saints who are in. He will even say that to the Corinthians and all the mess that they were in, to the saints. He will call them holy ones. What is it to be a saint? It is that you have been set apart. You are a holy one, set apart for God's purposes. And you are holy, Christian. There is what is called definitive sanctification. You are holy now before God. But it's also true that as a saint, we continue to be a sinner. And so we're seeking to grow in our holiness. To be conformed to what we already are. And that is sanctification. We see that in verse 4. A saint is always growing as a saint. This fourth verse is often the grounds for great debate in the church and theological circles. What does it mean that God chose us before the foundation world that He predestined us? That's good discussion to have. I love it. It's good to think upon. But isn't it interesting that Paul, and for that fact God, as the writers of the Scriptures, So both the human and the divine here aren't so concerned with you and I understanding the mystery of election here, but rather with its purpose. And the purpose is that we should, quote, should be holy and blameless before Him. Your sanctification matters. The way you live as a Christian in this world matters. What does that look like? What does it look like to be holy and blameless before Him? Well, it looks like Christ. In chapter 5, Paul was saying in this letter, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, how do we do that? Well, union with Christ is experienced in communion with Christ, which requires abiding in Christ. Union is that object of reality. I am in union with Christ as a Christian. But that Communion with Christ is what I experience. That is my experiential reality where He draws near to me and I'm drawing near to Him where I'm delighting in Him. And so it is always true that we are in union with Christ. But that communion with Christ can be disrupted. Well, how do you stop that communion with Christ from being disrupted? Well, you have to abide in Christ. That's what Jesus says. He who abides in me and I in Him, He it is that bears much fruit. So that then requires yet another question. Well, how do I then abide in Christ? How do I abide in Christ so that I may have unfettered communion with Christ in my union with Christ to His glory and praise? Well, Jesus says it is this. If you abide in Me and My Word abides in you. It's by His Word. If we were to flip over to Colossians 3.16, Paul emphasizes the same principle. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. We abide in Him as we commune with Him in His Word as we're in union with Him. This is what the Christian does. You don't ever graduate from the school of discipleship in Christ, but rather we always seek to understand more, ever learning ever growing, ever doing more for His glory, we will reflect what we reverence. And so we want to know more of Him. So that we revere Him more. So that 
We look more like Him. We're His. We're His saints called to holiness in Christ. So questions of application. Do you desire and labor to look more like Christ? Do you find sin offensive? Do you find righteousness attractive? If I was to ask you this morning, what sins right now in your life are you seeking to kill, Christian? What would you say? And and practically, how are you seeking to kill those sins? And if I was to ask you this morning, what is it that you are seeking after in righteousness? Where are you seeking to grow in Christ? What would your answer be? And what practically are you doing to seek after that? And to grow in it. Surely one of them has to be, we can all grow in this, is reading our Bible and being in prayer. Jesus says it is by this Word that we abide in Him. So you want a barometer on how seriously you take righteousness and how much you want to grow in Christ, you can ask yourself, how much am I attending to His Word and praying? Am I reading it? Not just reading it, but am I mulling over it? Am I thinking through it? Am I seeking to understand it? Am I praying it? Fifth, we're children of God, adopted in Christ. Notice the language in Ephesians 1. It is the Father who blessed us in verse 3. It's the Father who adopted us in verse 5. It's the Father in verse 17 who gives us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. When we're saved in Christ, it is a family business. Adoption has often been called the apex or the climax or the summit of Christ's blessing in Christ, and and that is absolutely true. We were saved not just simply to adorn heaven. We weren't saved just to supplement the choirs of angels. We were saved to be His very sons and daughters for all of eternity. To be members of His family. I was watching this past Sunday. Uh, I was talking to one of you out in the hall. And, and a small child came running up and grabbed the legs of the the man in front of me and did kind of an iron bear hug grip on the leg like they were trying to squeeze all the life out of that leg. And that child clearly felt secure and safe and provided for and was pleased until the child looked up and realized it wasn't their father. And quickly the child backed up and then ran over to their father and squeezed that leg That's a good picture. There's no question of belonging. There's security with dad. There's provision. There's love. Or at least that's how it should be. And it is in the family of God. I remember someone challenging me about a decade or so ago. We had just prayed together and we finished the prayer. Nothing like a little encouragement when you get uh, critiqued on a prayer you just prayed. And this friend, good friend, said to me, he said, Jason, why is it that whenever I hear you pray, you, you begin the prayer by saying, Oh God, or Lord of Heaven, or why don't you ever address God as your Father? Now, my pride in the moment, I had every reason for not to do so. And he was quick to point out, he said, you realize that when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. When Jesus is instructing us about the most intimate of moments with God, when we are alone in our prayer closet, The language He gives us to use is familial. Father. That we might know that we can draw near to Him. That we might know that He looks upon us with love. You hear all those application questions, you say, ah, 
Yep, not doing that well, not doing that well, not doing that well. He still looks upon you with love. Because he's your father. We're in the family of God. And he taught us to pray our Father for a reason. So questions of application. Do you, dear Christian, see God as your Father? Yes, see Him as holy. See Him as sovereign. See Him as seated above. We need to underscore all of those things. But do you see Him as your Father? Do you believe He looks upon you always with an eye of love? Believe he smiles at you. Do you know he wants and aims, and more than that, he wills your best? And ultimately, do you trust him as your father? Sixth, we are redeemed in Christ. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Redemption is a key word throughout the Scriptures. And it has the idea of setting one free. But it's not just the idea of setting one free. It's setting one free at the cost of a payment. And nothing has been purchased at a higher cost than your soul, Christian. Nothing. It costs the very lifeblood of the Son of God. You want to know how precious you are in His eyes? You've been set free. You've been redeemed and set free. You were slaves to sin. That, that wonderful chapter in Romans 6 where Paul was walking through this and he's talking about the fact that, that sin controlled our lives. He uses the word dominion. Sin had dominion over you. That is, it ruled like a king. It, it sat enthroned on the heart of your life and you had to do its dictates. Whatever it said do, you did. Whatever it willed, you did. Because it ruled you. Paul is saying in Romans 6 that don't you know that now you have received Christ? And as a Christian, as that grace came to you, and as Christ came to you, and as you are now united with Christ, it is no longer sin that sits enthroned over your heart. It has no dominion there. Grace does. Christ does. That means you don't have to obey sin. You don't have to give in to sin. You've been set free. You've not only been set free from sin, you've been set free from Satan. He's no longer your prince. He has no right. He has no right to place a hold upon you. Now, he may tempt you. He may afflict you. But he cannot have you. You're Christ. Redeemed with a price. The price of His own blood. And He died so that we might live. He said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. For me to live is Christ. Yes. And for me to know life is Christ. So questions of application. Do you know you are valued by God in heaven? No greater price could have been paid than was paid for you. Do you know you've been set free from sin? Or do you say, you know what, there's this sin in my life, it's always been there and it's always going to be there. Have you given into that lie? Or do you know that you've been set free from sin and you're seeking to kill it? Do you revel in your freedom in Christ. He set you free. And maybe even a better question, do you allow others to revel in their freedom in Christ? Seventh, we're forgiven our sins in Christ. Verse seven, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And truly, to be forgiven in Christ, to be forgiven our sins, is one of the greatest benefits of 
of the Gospel of our Lord and our Savior. No longer is God set against us, but now He is for us. No longer is the guilt and the weight of that sin mine to carry. It's not my burden to bear. It has been carried by another. About that, I think the weight of sin, the weight of the guilt of sin, that there is nothing like it in all the world. And you can lose a loved one, you can lose a relationship, you can lose a job, you can lose your health. And the weight of that doesn't compare to the weight that sin can bear down upon you. We've all felt like this at one time or another as a Christian that Psalm 32 The psalmist says this, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Just the incredible weight of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. As David was saying in Psalm 51, after he has sinned with Bathsheba and Killed her husband Uriah, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's just always there. It clouds everything else in life. It just sits there and it makes everything else feel like a burden and everything else just feels like going through the motions because there's just this weight of guilt that is sitting there. And you can try and get it out of your mind and you will for a short period of time, but then all of a sudden it comes rushing back and everything is clouded. Paul is saying to us, and Jesus would say to us, that guilt is not yours to carry. It's been paid for. You've been forgiven your sins. It makes a mockery of the cross, dear Christian, when you try and carry around that guilt. I love how Luther used to talk about it. He used to say, you know, Satan would come to him and would hurl accusations at him and say, Luther, you did this sin and you did that sin and you don't look like Christ in this way and you haven't matured in this way. And Luther said that he would reply to Satan and he would say, all of that is true. And you know what, Satan? If you could see my heart, you would see that there is even more that is true. But you know what? It has all been paid for by the blood of Christ. So hurl your accusations. They're no longer mine to carry. It's been paid for. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins are forgiven, Christian. So questions of application. Do I know that I have peace with God? Do I think He looks upon me with some kind of divine anger? Do I know that guilt is no longer mine to carry? Have I given it over to my Savior? Can you say that you understand that? Can you say that you actually live like that? Eighth, we're inheritors in Christ. We see this in verse 11, that in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Paul will tell us in Romans 8.17, you are an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. And as no Christian is poor, an heir is one who receives what once belonged to another. This has a, a long history, an important thought throughout the Scriptures. You'll remember that Jacob schemes to get his brother's inheritance and Esau will give up his inheritance for a bowl of stew. But that was not the most foolish giving up of inheritances. Most foolish is all the way back in the opening pages of the Bible. Where Adam, created in the very image of God, a very son of God, 
an inheritor of this world. He was supposed to be, but he tried to secure what was not his, and he lost all that was his and all that could have been his. And so God, not looking to see all of that forsaken, sins. His only begotten Son, the second Adam into the world, and the second Adam proves faithful where the first Adam was unfaithful. And the second Adam secures that inheritance. He is the beloved of the Father. Paul uses that language right here in verse 6. He's the beloved of the Father. As the Father said over the Son when He was baptized, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And He fulfilled what he was tasked with. And so the Father gives him all things. Jesus will say that in John 16, all that the Father has in mind is mine. And the Son shares all that He has with us. Because we're united to Him. All things are the Christians in Christ. Questions of application. Do you live as a child of God, inheriting all things? Or, like a child of the world, striving to secure something? Do you rest in knowing that all is provided? And are you seeking things above, or are you finding you are quite content with things below? been given all things. You are an heir with Christ, a co-heir with Him. It's just a matter of time until it is all laid out before you. Finally, we're redeemed to His praise in Christ. Our salvation is meant to evoke praise to God in Christ. Paul will time and again inform us that this is the great goal of our salvation. For the redeemed individual who understands that their salvation is by union with Christ, that they did nothing to secure that union with Christ, that the grace that was given to them was not something that they went chasing after, that all the benefits that they enjoy in Christ were not there because of their merit or because of something that they secured or something that they did or something that they would become. There is only one possible response. And that is praise. Praise to the One who gives us this grace. And so great is salvation. That is the beauty of the sovereignty of God and salvation is that it just elicits praise. Verses 5 and 6, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 11 and 12, In Him we have obtained an inheritance having predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things. Why? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why? To the praise of His glory. Doxology is the fruit of salvation. The boy or girl or man or woman redeemed in Christ will find that there's nothing else they can do. There's no other recourse. When you receive such a great salvation, all you can do is just sing forth praise. Give forth praise. You want to praise Him in your home, and you want to praise Him in the workplace, and you want to praise Him in the church gathered together. You want to praise Him with your lips. You want to praise Him with what you meditate upon. You want to praise Him with what you long after. You want to praise Him with your life for me to live as Christ. It all becomes about Him. I'm a Christian. That defines everything else. I'm a Christian. So one last question of application because it is done so well. It almost walks through every single one of these. Can you answer the question of Heidelberg Catechism, question one, as it's answered? That your only comfort 
in life and in death. That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Because that's what a Christian is. And that's what a Christian does. We're defined by our union with Christ. And now we just simply seek to live for Him, being conformed more and more to His likeness, giving Him praise and glory with all that we are. You're a Christian. I pray you know all the sweetness of that and only grow in understanding the sweetness of that. Along with me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, what a gift our salvation is. What a Savior we have been given. We are thankful that it is from above. We rejoice that we have been united with your Son and our Savior. We say we understand that. These are very basic things. Forgiven our sins. Set free. Redeemed. United with Christ. Saved unto your praise and glory, things that easily roll off the tongue, things that we can easily speak about, and yet we do not know them as we should. Oh, grow us in our understanding of our union with Christ, that we might live more to your praise and glory, that we might enjoy more of our salvation, that we might delight more in our Savior. May that be true of us today, for truly we have all things in the Son. For us to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.